0: What's going on, everyone? I'm Harry Potvin and welcome back to season two and another episode of The H Panel, uh, the show where we bring on guests from all different backgrounds to talk mental health. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by motivational speaker and mental health advocate, Asante Hodden. Presenting twice for TEDx, Asante uses storytelling and rap to share his own personal journey with mental health, spread positivity, and make a change in the lives of everyone listening. Additionally, he uses his platform to highlight inequities in our system such as structural racism and poverty, as they're detrimental to the mental health of individuals in marginalized communities, but isn't really focused on enough. Uh, In his own words, his key message is, if you can't see the light, still search for it, that if you're scared, find courage, and that if you feel like giving up, don't, because there's always hope. And I love that message. Asante, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Man, uh, as you read that, I forgot I even said that. So (laughs) thanks for reminding me.
0: (laughs) No problem. No problem. Before I get too into questions, how are you feeling? I know you're still recovering from COVID-19. What was that experience like for you?
1: Oh man, Uh, you know, they say that for younger folks, um, you're going to be all right. Well, I mean, you might survive it, Yeah. but it was terrible. Uh, So, you know, really protect yourselves, wear your masks. Uh, do what you need to do. Wash your hands. It's it's also about protecting you know our loved ones and especially our elders, right? But um overall, I mean yeah you know knocks me out for about three weeks and then I've like been physically recovering ever since and it's been about a month
2: now that you know now I'm starting to feel closer to a hundred percent. But it really does does a number on you. Yeah. Potentially like some folks walk around with the asymptomatic, um but I was not one of those people.
0: Man, thankfully you're back to almost 100% now, which is very good news. I'm glad to hear that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you grew up, what kind of made you choose the career path that you're in, stuff like that? This might take a while, man. That's fine. I got all the time in the world, man. (laughs) All right, cool. So me, I was born in Jamaica, came to Canada when
1: I was about two, two and a half years old, Um, came to Toronto. I've been in Toronto ever since, um, except for short break in the suburbs there for a couple years which wasn't my favorite what was interesting about how i came to toronto is that my father was here first and then my mom and you know my two brothers came afterward you know shortly thereafter uh you know my parents split when i was around four or five years old um hard to remember the exact age because i was a little one we were in the shelter for a little while uh my mom and my two brothers transitioned out of the shelter as my mom figured some stuff out because she's a very resourceful woman. Yeah, you know, then we were in the projects pretty much, you know, for me, I was in the projects up until age 24 when I finally moved out. So, I mean, you know, different projects at different times. Growing up in Toronto, you know, and seeing Toronto change has been really interesting for me because Toronto in the 90s was like a much different place than Toronto nowadays, where Toronto in the 90s was still like not diverse. It was still predominantly white. Um, There was still just racism everywhere uh to the extent that you know me and my friends and you know my brothers we all kind of knew that we couldn't go downtown if we were not you know essentially in a pack so to speak Mm. um because the threat of actual violence was a real thing you know growing up you'll see swastikas on like the school buses and you know in the bathroom stalls and those kinds of things and folks would try to intimidate you you know so um there's that aspect of it, and then, you know, on a familial aspect, you know, like I said, my parents split um, when I was young. The older I got, my second TED Talk is about this, but the older I got, the the less I saw my father, and, you know, by around age, what, 11, 12, um, you know, there was a point where I didn't see him for an entire calendar year, and, you know, I had this emotional call on the phone with him where I was like, why don't you love me? And, you know, on the other end, it was just, like, radio silence, and something broken me that day, and. Um, you know, then I started to notice a lot of changes in me. You know, I stopped wanting to go out with my friends. I stopped wanting to, you know, do all the things I used to do, which was essentially not be in the house. You know, and all of my friends would say, hey, you want to come over or, hey, you want to go play baseball? You want to, Do this, you want to do that? And I was like, nah, I'm just going to, you know, chill at home. I think that's when I really started to get into, you know, my more solitary activities like video games and reading. Yeah, so it was was a hard time. Plus, we were super poor growing up. I don't think a lot of Canadians
3: really understand what poor means. Yeah, yeah. Um, It was like first world poor and then like third world poor. And we were like, though we lived in the
1: first world and thus had, you know, housing that looked rather, you know, normal but outside of that it really felt like we were poorer than poor in canada in the sense that you know for years we were eating out of food banks you know hand-me-downs was was a thing or donated clothes or um you know you buy clothes you know once every two years and try to make it stretch and make it last and you know that goes you know, uh, you know the underwear lack of underwear lack of socks you know you'd be wearing your jackets until you know your 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 windbreaker became your winter jacket because it was so tight <laughs> like yeah. like it was it was um it was, it was tough man and at the same time you know you, you look back on those times and it's like the one of the good things are the benefits of growing up that way is you, you learn how to manage discomfort which is uh, a really i think important skill for anyone to learn you know so i learned that in sports but I also learned it just growing up because, you know, you go through an entire, you know, Toronto winter. And I know Toronto's not the coldest place in Canada, but I mean, Toronto's still pretty cold. It's pretty cold. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you go through a Toronto winter and there's no heat in your house. Right. So, you know, it's like you come home and you're colder than you would be when you went outside.
3: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: It's like all the cold, same way heat gets trapped, cold gets trapped. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you're wearing, you know, three, four layers. You're sleeping in your tube. You know, you got the stove on to try to generate some kind of heat in the house. You know, you don't got no cable. You don't got no internet. You know, so all you really have at that point is is, is your family. And, you know, even that, you know, my brother went away to school when I was like 10 or 11 years old. My oldest brother, he was in Windsor. So, I mean, he was far away. Uh, you know, my mom was working all the time. I, I would see her maybe once a week. Both of my brothers are much older than me. So, I mean, my other brother's out of the house. So, I was like alone all the time. You know, which... In, in, a, in a lot of ways, maybe, you know, helps benefit the kind of stuff that I do now, right. which is essentially, like, thinking a lot of things and then saying them out loud, right? So right. I don't time to, like, just learn how to be introspective, you know, reading these books and playing these video games and watching these movies and kind of learning how to storytell because that was kind of, my, my world around me was just filled with stories because there were no people around right i wasn't
3: even really trying to be a storyteller man if i i hated writing as a kid oh yeah i
1: i despised it you know when it would come around with that like writing folder
0: and you had to write your little paragraph in, in your notebook yeah 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 oh man i that was like the worst part of the school week like it was like my least
2: favorite thing to do in school and i generally liked school but that part of it
1: didn't like it. What really made a difference for me, though, in that regard was, yeah, like I said, you know, I started being alone all the time. Just I just started reading a lot of books in, like, grade five, um, grade six. You know, I just started reading so much. And I just got really into it. Uh, I pretty much read out the entire library of young adult novels geared towards the boys in school to the point that I just ran out of books to read. Um, And my mom had to figure out how to, you know, scrounge some money to get me some more books. I remember one time in grade six, you know, we're supposed to take the whole week to write like a short story and then hand it in. Me, of course, being a procrastinator, (laughs) I know. I waited until until Sunday afternoon to start the story that I was supposed to hand in on Monday, right? And we, you know, back then you had you know these old ass computers that didn't automatically save your shit. I swear on this, sorry.
3: (laughs)
0: Yeah, right. yeah, you're good, you're good, you're good. So
3: I'm
1: writing, I'm writing, I'm writing. I'm like pretty much at the end of the story. Like all of my ideas are down. And I'm actually pretty proud of what I'm writing. And then I don't know what happened. lost the whole thing. No. <laughs> right? So I'm like, damn. Uh, but you know, uh, in writing they say you should never keep the first thing you write. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so they do. I went back to the drawing board, started writing again. You know, the story came out probably better than, than what I wrote the first time handed it in. I'm like, whatever, I'm just doing an assignment. My teacher, her name was Miss Valentine, and, you know, she came back a week later, and I'd gotten, like, an A, like, plus, plus, like, the highest A you could give on the assignment, and then, you know, she's like, hey, can I read this story to the whole class? And
2: I'm like, I don't know if that's a good idea, but, you know, I'm a kid, I don't really know how to say no to, like, this yeah. authority Right. And the reason
1: I'm I'm like scared to read it out to the class is because, you know, it was essentially like a fantasy story, like swords and sorcery, all that kind of stuff. Right. And back then, that kind of stuff was not cool. Like, I know now, like, if you say, oh, I play Final Fantasy, like, you know, you're good. Um, back then, you couldn't mention that stuff in public. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, I had a crush on, like, this girl in class and I was like, and she was like super cool, like the opposite of someone who would be into that kind of stuff. Right. And I'm like, damn, I want really to look like a nerd in front of this girl who I'm, like,
0: basically in love with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that grade six <sucks> love. <laughs> right?
1: So, anyway, uh, Miss Valentine reads the story. And the whole time, I'm just, like, slowly, like, shrinking farther into my chair as the story gets, like, nerdier and nerdier. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm not even like looking at anyone else's reactions at this point. I'm like, let this moment be over. Please God, we're missing lunch for this. Uh, <laughs> by the end of it, you know, everyone's like starts clapping and this is like grade six in like the projects. Like no one is clapping for nothing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> everyone starts clapping. Um, you know, people are coming up to me saying, Wow, that was amazing and again, these were kids who generally weren't like nobody likes writing. <laughs> at that age yeah um you know and then you know my crush comes up to me and she said wow that's such an amazing story and i was like okay <laughs> all right <laughs> okay scarlet um, <laughs> then my teacher afterward uh came to me and said you know you really have a gift for writing you should keep doing this and that's where it all started for me the writing piece
0: shout out to miss valentine
1: for real like Man. I had the best teachers growing up. Cannot
0: complain in that regard. Man, I know, I know exactly the feeling of when a teacher's reading your stuff and you're in your chair. You're like, please no, and it's like your face feels like it's gonna melt because you're like blushing way too hard. Oh man! So you've spoken at two TEDx performances and you know at over like a hundred appearances at both pan like panels, conferences, schools, stuff like that. Is there one presentation you've done that really stands out for you and why? You know.
1: I have a few that really stick out for me. You know, my, my first TEDx talk being one of them, but I did another, and my very first talk definitely stands out to me. Uh, I was
2: 26 years old. Um, I'm not going to say my age now, but I'm older <laughs> than that. <laughs> um, that was quite some time ago now. But, um,
1: no, I was 25, sorry. I was volunteering at a mental health organization in, in Ontario here, the Mood Disorders Association of Ontario. And... They were partnering with the Catholic School Board to essentially do a, a, a program where young people with mental health challenges would go out and speak to other young people about it to essentially normalize the conversation. Right. Uh, this organization, uh, MDAO, uh, they didn't really have a lot of young people working in their offices. It was me and a couple other people. And they came to the three of us. One guy said No. And, and me and another young woman were kind of like voluntold into it. And again, at that point, I didn't know how to say no to anything, um, especially like authority figures. So I, I'm like, I guess I'm going to do it. So we spent like all spring writing and preparing my story and kind of figuring that piece out. And then in November of that year, I forget the year, but it was, it was a while back. Um, I, I remember getting on stage and being just terrified, looking out at all these high school students, like hundreds of them just staring back at me. And I'm about to tell, you know, what I thought was an embarrassing life story to them. Uh, because at that point, you know, I was really embarrassed about um, not my mental health challenges themselves, mm-hmm. but ways in which, you know, I was behaving uh, or trying to cope or trying to, you know, figure out my life. Right. And, you know, all the mishaps and missteps that happen as a teenager and a young adult. And I was about to tell everybody all of that shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I was afraid these kids were going to heckle me really cool me all of that stuff so they call my name and I get up and I stand up and at this point I didn't like I didn't know how to memorize anything so I'm holding this paper and I'm just like shaking shaking the papers like trembling and like the sweat is dropping onto <laughs> yeah. the page and like blurring out the ink like <laughs> yeah. really mad. um so anyways I'm going through it I don't know I think I, I got to the part where I start talking about dr. Phil and people just start laughing right but it wasn't like laughing at me, it was like laughing with me and let me tell you like a lot of the like original material I wrote for that first talk I would say about 60 to 70% of it still exists in like my typical presentation which is most of my um, first TED talk. When I wrote everything the first time, none of that stuff was written to be a joke, like none of that stuff was written to you know kind of generate laughter or you know bring uh, some levity to, to the story but Um, you know, folks started laughing along and, you know, reacting to other parts and, you know, some people were, like, tearing up and all these different reactions were happening. I was still, like, blackout in the zone because I was just so nervous and I just remember uh, everything ending. The whole room just erupted uh, in applause in a way that it just didn't for any of the other speakers that day Um, and it was, like, a whole-day program. Right after my talk was the lunch break and I remember not eating lunch at all because I was talking to people for an hour about the talk I just delivered. And, you know, folks who were high school students, folks who worked in, you know, Toronto Public Health, um, in Toronto Community Housing, you know, for the city. Everyone was giving me their cards. They said, how often do you do this? I'm like, this is my very first time. And they're like, what? It's <laughs> natural up there. And all these different things. immediately it was like, wow, like, I got, I got something to say. And people are, you know, willing to listen, and I don't need to be shy about this stuff, and I, and, and it's okay for me to talk about it because even me at that point, I was like, I'm not sure if it's safe for me to talk about this. That moment was the first moment, probably in my life, where I felt comfortable talking about how I grew up, uh, because I was, I just kind of wanted to erase that part of my life from my life because uh, I just thought, you know, I, I had internalized a lot of these messages. I grew
2: up in what I would call the no scrubs era. <laughs> You remember that
1: thought by TLC, right? (laughs) There was so much stigma about being poor. And obviously there was stigma about, you know, being a young man with mental health challenges and depression and anxiety and fears, sensitivities and things of that nature. I wanted to just push that aside and never mention it again once I got to a point where I didn't need to mention it. But here I was talking about it and realizing that it could have a powerful impact on other folks. um, And I could really help people just by Uh, telling my story and you know bringing people into my experience and also bringing people into how I was able to you know find some light in my life that's probably the first talk that really um, had a impact for me
0: I can kind of relate to that because I always like like you said like having a young man with mental health issues even now is like oh like you're so soft like uh, yeah like grow up all the all of that like saying, yeah, be a man, like all of these sayings. Uh, so I never, ever, like talked about mental health ever to anybody because I was like, man, I'm just gonna man up and it'll be fine, and it never was. So uh, the one when I was kind of, you know, figuring things out for myself, they asked me to do a mental health panel for the University of Guelph, and it was like a men's only thing, and like I went there and. I did it and it felt like all this weight came off of me and I was like shaking at the end and there was like a really good reception. But I know a big fear of mine when I kind of started to open up about mental health. And when I was sitting there before, I was like, man, am I really going to share all of this stuff? Like, I don't want to share any of it, but I i can't really back out now. I wrote, there's like 300 people in this room. I can't be like, sorry, I got to go. Uh, so I, I know a big fear of mine was kind of, you know, wondering what kind of reception I would get from my family and friends when it kind of happened. So when you first decided to go speak out, what was the kind of reception like from your family and peers?
1: Dude, that's a great question because I don't even think I told anybody I was doing this for like two years.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: until so, so like, you know, people saw me on the news and they're like, oh shit. <laughs> like, I what? didn't know this about you. I know um, that guy. Exactly. Uh, So, uh, like the very first talk I did, the only person I like even spoke about it with and brought with me uh, was, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who was super supportive. uh, You know, still mad respect for her, and you know everything that you know she helped me kind of build within myself. You know, yeah, you know, I didn't really tell my friends or family about it because I don't know, man. that, That just felt really close to home. Yeah. And and then you know one day did learn about it um you're kind of afraid that they're gonna think about you differently mm-hmm. especially if these are people that you grew up with because exactly. they're there for like a lot of your experiences and they may not have seen what you were experiencing yeah you know i don't know about you but like there are some folks who are like damn i didn't know you were going through that mm-hmm. and then they kind of felt guilty that they never um saw what was happening or checked in on you or anything like that um I what, what was your experience like with that
0: kind of stuff man like my my best friend like basically my brother on family day he'll have dinner with us like i've known this guy forever and when i started opening up he was like i never knew any of that and like he just like broke down he was like i wish i you know was there for you and stuff but it's not like it's obviously not his fault i like i had found a way to perfectly hide it from everyone like the reception was like you're always smiling, you're always joking around. Like there's no way you're that guy. It's like, well, yeah, there's two sides of me. Everyone gets the good, happy guy, but when I'm alone, it's like I was I was hurting. So, like just like you, the reception was like I had no idea.
2: Yeah, yeah, and
1: I, I think that speaks to like how
0: strong the stigma can be. Mm-hmm. Is that we can craft these entire
3: personalities, yeah, out of there
2: to you know
1: protect ourselves
2: from. What we don't want
3: others to see exactly right?
1: you know for me it was like i was just excelling in everything and i felt like if people saw me excelling and stuff they would never know that i was not excelling on the inside but so it's like oh he's student council vice president he's captain of the basketball team he's you know voted uh, by faculty to be like the best student in school and all these different things pretty much straight A's my whole high school career it was all kind of like if i could achieve one people don't worry about you and
3: i don't know about you but for me i just didn't want anybody to worry about me. yeah no um, right yeah, I, I felt that.
1: like so guilty when others will worry about me mm-hmm. um maybe that's something i'm still actually working through to this day and the other piece was when when you feel what it feels like to be like depressed it's like you don't want anybody to see you because you're afraid that if the facade that you've built for the world gets shattered, that no one will ever want to be around you and no one's ever going to love you mm-hmm. because you feel a particular way about yourself in those moments and you assume that other people are going to see you through the same lens you're seeing yourself through, so you want to protect that. Yeah. So that's really what, what it was for me and, you know, one of the benefits for me that helped me do that was that, you know, I moved across the city right before I started grade 9. So, like, nobody knew who I was before that. Nobody knew I was, like, essentially, like, a guy who talked and smiled all the time, right? Nobody knew about that. So when I showed up in grade nine and I was kind of, like, the
2: brooding, you know, poet kind of guy.
1: That was my personality. And I just wanted to, you know, essentially be by myself a lot of the time, write and play sports. I kind of crafted this uh, persona of, like, this enigmatic person that was like misunderstood and you know but still like very nice mm-hmm. you know and all that kind of stuff kind
0: of the wallflower that smiled a lot kind of guy
1: you know what I'm saying and you know that was working for me because I was I was able to hang in the background but also be visible enough to step up when I needed to and um, and that's kind of what I wanted and you know once you go out there and you start telling your story I mean that, that especially with your family and friends I mean can't do that no more. (laughs) All of a sudden, everyone sees the real you and you feel naked and you just kind of wonder how people are perceiving you because you you kind of built uh, a certain image image of yourself for such a long time and now people are really seeing you and you're kind of, I don't know about you, but I was really insecure about how the people closest to me would feel when when they learned my story.
0: Yeah, big time. It's one thing to like speak to a room of random people you've never met before and then once like you know, you go to your family and you're like, this is happening. Oh my God. That was like, that was like the hardest part of everything. I kinda, I can relate to your story kind of because it, it was hard for me to kind of go out and speak about it because I, like you had built like this persona of like athlete, always happy kind of does well in school. Not great, but like he, he gets there. Um, and like, is just always happy no matter what's thrown at him. Uh, when in reality, like mentally that was not the case. But like it it took a lot like this year to kind of just open up about it because I had gone to a point in university where I was like captain of the swim team in, at the university, like I was in like the student support network, which is like we sit there and listen to people uh, talk about their mental issues like we're there for them. I knew a lot of people in the community at Guelph, and it was just like, man, the second I drop this, I know for a fact people are gonna look at me different. Something people don't realize is like. It's usually always a really positive reception, and I think that's what needs to be advertised more because people are always scared to open up because they're like, people are going to hate me or like think I am absolutely weak when, like, in reality, that's not the case.
1: Yeah, man. I, I don't know about you, but before I started talking about my story, I felt more like my world was really small, mm-hmm. and now I feel like my world is
3: huge. Yeah, man. You no, know, part of that is just in a lot of ways it big growth.
2: Um, I just know a lot more people, but also it opens
1: up your relationships in ways that it, it, you can't even imagine, you know, all of a sudden there's a level of intimacy with everyone in your life that you have only dreamed about mm-hmm. and feel liberated because now the people that you love actually love you because they know what you've been hiding. Cause sometimes when you hide stuff, you're like, oh, this person, they love me, but they don't really know me. That, that kind of thing. And now they really know you and they still love you. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful because it's like, damn, I am capable of this thing that either my experience or my depression brain or whatever has been telling me I was incapable of. Which is that someone can care about me, someone can have you know compassion for me, sympathize, empathize, and just be there with me. I don't know about you, man, but that completely just floored me changed my
0: life you mentioned uh in your ted talks that it wasn't really until university that you realized or you kind of acknowledged that you know you had depression and anxiety much like you i didn't really confront what i had through most of my life because personally i wasn't aware that like i myself could have it because i guess with the stigma i always believed that you know depression was kind of only for crazy people and weak people that's just kind of where the stigma uh, is gearing it towards. So, what do you think needs to be done in order to help kids that are struggling identify this problem earlier? And how can we go about ending this? You know, stigma around depression is only for crazy people.
1: Man, I didn't even know what depression was.
0: Yeah, man. Like they don't you teach know,
1: you. I, I literally didn't even know what it was until I was like 19 years old. I just I knew about the Great Depression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, like I literally. Didn't even know what it was. And so I, I just thought I had like super low self-esteem and hated myself for reasons I couldn't figure out. What I think we could do about it is just really talk to kids from the time that they're little about emotions. No, you know, all kids, but also I think an emphasis on young men because we're just taught like two emotions, like happiness slash joy and like
3: anger. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. So it's not happy we like
1: process everything through like anger and that's not always healthy for various reasons you, you start conflicts you get into fights i don't know about you man but like growing up i had like a quick temper mm-hmm. um
3: yeah
1: um you know because it's like oh, just like that right well i will not say i had a quick temper but once i got there it was like zero to like a hundred yeah like i went from like happy-go-lucky to, like, I'm, like, blackout, snapping on people.
0: How can you regulate emotions you don't know about? Exactly, yeah.
1: If you don't teach a kid that, you know, what, what we might say is anger could be a whole bunch of different things. It could be frustration. It could be disappointment. It could be solemnness. Like, it could be all these different things, but you're just feeling it as anger because that's all that's been taught to you. You're not given the tools to even understand what's happening inside of you. Right. So I think, you know, we focus so much on making sure that kids know things that realistically, you know, 80 percent of that stuff they're going to forget by the time they reach adulthood. Yeah. We should be teaching kids how to be better people rather than, you know,
2: how to know things. And I I don't think we really focus enough time on uh,
1: teaching kids how to be better people. It's like once you leave kindergarten kindergarten. You know, it's all about
3: learning things at that point. Why aren't we teaching kids about, you know, the the
1: nuances and the many variations of emotions that one could experience? I I think if you help a person learn how to be self-reflective, learn how to be introspective, you know, learn how to really look in the mirror and really see themselves and learn that the emotions that they feel are okay. The emotions are always okay.
2: Sometimes Mm -hmm. how we express them, is not okay, right? But emotions are always okay, and if you could learn
1: that the emotions are okay, and then just kind of learn what's happening inside of you at any given moment, I think that 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 gives a lot of power to every everyone who knows how to do that. You know, it's it's like a it's like a secret that other people aren't let in on. Yeah. You know, and you know, and then people you know look at you and they say, "Wow, that person's really got it together." I don't got shit together. Mm-hmm. I just know how to recognize when my shit isn't together so I don't go around taking it out out on other people or myself right for me it's like how can we talk to kids about their emotional world in a way that makes sense for them and then bring them along as they get older and then introduce them to words and labels that they can use for what they're feeling and attach those words and labels to experiences either internally or externally so now they can say I'm feeling this, which made me, you know, say this to myself in my head, or made me do this, you know, to some person. And you know, whether it's good or bad, or healthy or unhealthy, I prefer healthy, or unhealthy to good or bad because, yeah. you know, everyone's different in terms of how they respond to things. And I think if we if we really focused on that with children, I mean, we're, we're just helping people be better people, and essentially creating a better world
0: yeah definitely and like especially when they're that young and that easily like that's an age where they're so easily influenced and they're like growing and their brains are developing so teaching them like to identify feelings and acknowledge them and like learn how to deal with them would be huge like i could not tell you what i learned in math in like grade four or grade five i don't remember any of it so like just giving them something valuable to learn that will actually help them later in life like that would be that would be massive
1: for me i, I think about things on a micro level and also a macro level mm-hmm. and you know i get upset when people say one person can't change the world i think that's
2: you know just Man. nonsense and bs all right because miss valentine
1: changed my world yeah i'm one person and i can, with all the talks i've done all the panels ted talks you know article i wrote last week that Is like blowing up on the internet. Mm -hmm. I'm reaching people now in what I assume is in very positive ways. Thousands of people because of Miss Ballantyne.
0: It just takes one person. That's all it takes.
1: Right? So we got to let go of these things.
0: Another thing, I'm going on a tangent now. Go for it.
3: (laughs) No, go. Go. When people say
2: such and such isn't realistic.
1: The moment you say something is not realistic to a child or anybody really, but especially a child. You are killing their dreams. Mm-hmm. Never tell a child something is unrealistic. Right. If it's if it might be hard or no one's done it before, you can say that, but don't say it's not possible. Yeah. Because now someone who could have changed the world is no longer going to try to. Because you're projecting your own limited beliefs about yourself onto someone else. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Stop it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> we don't advance the world that way. Yeah. But when Galileo was telling us. Uh, you know that the planets revolved around the sun everyone was like what's wrong with this guy <laughs> right to the extent that he had to like hide his findings and not tell anybody until he was like basically you know what is deathbed better what i think that's a story i don't know yeah. uh, but the <laughs> point is is that like you, you can't tell people that things are unrealistic or not possible or it doesn't happen that way because then you are essentially pressing pause on the world and we're not evolving anymore whether it's you know physically or You know, the way that we think about the world and you know, we're kind of living through one of those moments right now You know, and I I feel that way as a black person a lot right now is that like
0: there's always been like oh, racism is never gonna end Man, I hear that I, I hear that all the time. It's
2: not gonna end if you
0: don't try to end it. That's what that's what I've been trying to tell people, man They're like, what what is my contribution gonna do? I'm like, well, if everyone thinks like that nothing's gonna happen
1: Exactly Man, right? Just go out there and try. You know, that's like beneath all of my messages that I do in like any space. When I talk about hope and stuff like that, really, what I'm saying is like, just go out there and try. Yeah. Because if you don't try, you don't know what's possible.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a quote I really like. I don't know who it is, but it's like, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. So if we take out. It- I'm taking that one. (laughs) Do it. No, take it. Take it. It's not mine.
1: It's just ridiculous that people hold on to these things. But I think, you know, from like a human standpoint, I think a lot of it is just insecurity and internalizing, you know, things that, uh, you know, maybe we've been taught when we were children that, you know, we don't have power over our world. And I think we have immense power. The other tangent, I didn't get to this part of my tangent, but I'm going there now. The other part of my tangent that I don't like what we tell children is you're too nice Mm -hmm. what the hell is that like
0: (laughs) what does that mean
1: like are we really admonishing people (laughs) for being nice nice? like is this the world that we're living in and then we say we want a better world we want
0: equality we want this (laughs) we want that but don't be too nice (laughs) We, we want everything to be good but you're too good stop it
1: yeah all i heard growing up was hey asante you're too nice Uh, you're naive you're idealistic you're this you're that and you know i would always feel like guilty or hurt but that's just who i am so i i I can't change
0: you know (laughs) you feel guilty about being nice (laughs) what is that about (laughs) you know i
1: guess i like you're telling me that when i was in kindergarten and growing up watching you know tvo and, and all that stuff you know kids shows and everything was telling me to be nice and then I start doing that, and you're like, "No, nah, you, you went too far in that direction, <laughs> <laughs> too much." Like, what are you saying to me right now? I'm confused. Like, don't tell kids that either, because that's when you you that's when you know you kind of give kids permission to be bullies. Mm-hmm. And not every bully is going to be the kind of bully that intimidates you physically, or you know, punches someone in the face. Bully could be, uh, you know, the smart kid who makes sure that they they get all the class time. and intimidates the other kids from putting their hands up in class
3: Mm -hmm.
1: that kid's a bully too yeah right so you know we really got to think about these things that we're saying to children what we instill in children will always manifest in the world that's created 20 30 years down the line and then we throw our hands up in the air and say wow everything is messed up how did we get here we got here because we did it yeah i actually think a lot of life is
3: really simple in a sense, I'm a big believer that action, consequence. Um, you know,
1: one of the things I have written on my whiteboard and in my kitchen, because I have all these inspirational quotes that I have on the whiteboard there, and one of the things I have written up there is champions make championship decisions. Mm. You obviously excel at swimming, so you know what that means, right? right? You know that means, getting up early. You know that means, going to bed early if you need to so you can get up early. You know, that means that you have to, you know, 90% of your meals need to be good meals. You, you know that you have to, you know, stay on your training schedule. You know that, um, you know, uh, sometimes you have to, you know, you're having a great phone call with, with your partner, but you have to get off the phone because you got something else to do. Yep. You know all that stuff. Those are championship decisions. The championship decision isn't showing up to the meet and winning the race.
3: Yep, right.
1: That's the result of the championship decisions. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I use sports as metaphors for like everything. But what I'm saying is that if you want a world that is equal, and if you want a world that is safe, and if you want a world where you can live your dreams, I think the best dream to have is happiness. Yeah. If you want that world, then, you know, collectively, we all need to make championship decisions to get there. Mm-hmm. I need to not squash the dreams of children before they even have a chance to figure out. That they had a dream to begin with. Yeah, I need to treat you know the the waiter who made a mistake on my order with respect because everyone makes mistakes. Like Absolutely. you never made a mistake before. You never not nothing before. You never forgot to put a minus sign in front of your math question and you lost half a mark. Oh my god! <laughs> you're like, you took know, me back you're upset that they forgot to take tomatoes off your sandwich.
3: Yeah.
1: Come on, man! Like. And then you're gonna shout this person down and ruin their whole fucking week. Mm-hmm. Over that, we just need to be nicer people more often.
0: Absolutely. Kind of going back to what you were saying about the championship mentality and like, you know how winning the race is just a result of all that championship mentality. I think you know, adding to that, I, I've mentioned this before in a, in other videos and stuff. Is like a lot of people, what they do is they compare themselves to the end result as opposed to all the hard work that someone did, all the dedication they took to kind of get there, they, they're just like, why are they winning and I'm not? And I know me personally, like I've had that experience and I'm sure you've had that experience too where like you have to go through the motions and you're like going to therapy and you're doing all these self-help exercises and you're like, why is everyone else so much happier than me? And you're comparing your journey to someone else. And I know like for me and for a lot of people out there, like that makes you feel super discouraged because like, they're like, that guy's got it figured out, and I don't. Like, something is wrong with me. When in reality, everyone's got their own pace, everyone's got their own journey, their own struggles. What would you say to someone out there who may be feeling that kind of discouragement because they may not be, you know, in on the same level as someone uh, in terms of, like, mental health recovery?
1: You got to keep going. Yeah. You know, I, I I sit here, and I get up on stages, and I talk, you know, I tell my story, and it's like yo, I've been
2: doing this for two-thirds of my life. I've been working on Mm -hmm. (laughs) self-improvement. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I don't know if I can call myself, I think I'm young,
1: but, you know, I'm maybe transitioning out of youth dump. Um, (laughs) But what I'm saying is that, like, I started working on myself actively at 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And I started seeing the results probably when I was around 29. Yeah. You know, and that's not when, like, I started like, you know, being, uh, I would say, just debilitated by depression and anxiety when I was around
3: 22, 23, right? Doesn't mean I was all good. Right, yeah. (laughs) This meant that, you know, depression and anxiety weren't
1: absolutely dominating my life anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, they were still hitting me with the body punches, but, you know, I I was coming back a little bit, right? Yeah. Then, you know, I got to 29 and I was able to look around my world and just understand that, I finally, like, got to a place of understanding about myself that I can now have some level of power over my own happiness and know what the right things for me are and what the wrong things for me are and to feel that peace with who I am as a person, you know. It took me 14 years
3: just to get to that point, and yeah. I still practice
1: every day. Mm-hmm. Every day, I practice I live my life through that lens of, am I improving today? Yeah. Uh, am I being mindful of what's going on inside of me? I live that every day. Because mm-hmm. if I don't, then I know I'm gonna fall off. Yeah. So, like you said, you can't compare. You know, it, it, we we often compare ourselves to someone else's result without seeing their practice. Yeah. You know, and, and one thing that really taught me that was one of my brothers, he was really good at basketball growing up. And, you know, he grew up as kind of a chubby kid. And then one summer and, you know, he just kind of like grew like eight inches and, and all that, you know, flat became abs, so to speak.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and all of a sudden he was like this like super athletic guy. You know, he grew in height, but the flap went to abs because I used to see this guy get up at 6, 7 a.m. every morning for an entire summer. 6, 7 a.m. every morning. You know, it's something that had to just inspired him to want to be great at basketball. So he would get up every morning and he'd go run the stairs in the apartment building, you know, essentially until he was tired. Yeah. Then he would come home and he would eat breakfast and then he would rest, right? Around 11 a.m. noon, he'd go out to the basketball court and he would just practice, for about three hours you know there, there was it was like a schoolyard so there was the wall of the school and then the basketball court he'd throw passes with both hands against the wall to improve the accuracy of his
3: passes yeah he'd do chest passes he'd do bounce passes he did that for like an hour of just throwing the ball against the wall to know
1: how to throw a pass and then he'd work on his dribbling full court up and down the court dribbling he gets a half court crossover then he'd come back cross over behind the back you know then he'd come back cross over through my left leg cross over right he'd do that for an hour then he'd shooting jump shots hundreds of jump shots right then he'd go home and eat lunch then he'd go back out to the court later in the afternoon when other people were showing up and then he would play until everyone left yeah and then he would come home and then work out
0: <laughs> as if said- that stuff wasn't enough.
1: He did this almost every single day for an entire summer, Mm. you know, essentially two months. He went from being like no one even cared about who he was in high school in terms of like sports to being scouted by American universities to get scholarships. Everybody was convinced this guy was going to make the NBA. We all knew it. You know, he had a devastating leg injury and that kind of unfortunately ended that for him. Um, but everybody knew this guy was going to the end he was that damn good yeah you
2: know he's six foot five super athletic just dunking off people it was like
1: I was like I was watching an NBA player <laughs> in front of my eyes I'm like <laughs> what? where did this guy come from yeah <laughs> and then you know he broke his leg really badly and you know when you're, when you're poor sometimes you don't get the rehab and all of that stuff that that you need right so that was kind of it for him um he lost a lot of confidence in just like the integrity of his leg being able to handle um, being an athlete because he was just struggling with pain after that Mm -hmm. when the leg healed. But, I mean, he would have made the NBA. And, I mean, realistically, he would have not only made the NBA, he would have been like an all-star. Like, he was really, really good. And, you know, what I learned from that was the work it takes to be great at something. You have to practice. You know, so when people look at me now and whether they say, oh, you're a great writer or you're a great storyteller or you're a great speaker or you're, you know, you're great at being able to manage your own mental health. I literally have been practicing all of those things since I was 15 years old. Every single one of those things I've dedicated to practicing every day since I was 15. So, I mean, I've been writing probably since before that. I've been writing since I was, you know, in Miss Valentine's yeah. class when I was 11 years old, right? You know, so I was writing stories, I was writing poetry, I was writing rap music, you know, I've I just been doing this, plus I was reading, and reading is an essential part of learning how to write. I was reading two or three hours a day when I was in grade five. I read a ton. I was like, how do you know all this stuff, bro? Like, cause I'm reading all the time. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. right? And, and, you know, oh, you're a great speaker. Yeah, I I literally could not talk to people when I was 15 years old. You know, a lot of my story writing, I was practicing conversation when I'm writing dialogue. What would someone say in this situation? How would you respond to this body language? I'm, like, going through these scenarios in my head and learning how to converse with people and then going out into the real world and trying it out. And, you know, how it would work. You know, even, you know, being a funny person or having a sense of humor. I didn't have no sense of humor growing up. I was... I was watching comedians nonstop trying to learn, you know, comedic timing. Like, all of the stuff that I am good at, I practiced
3: it a hell of a lot. Yeah. And they're like, oh, man, you're so naturally talented. I'm not naturally talented
1: at shit. (laughs) I just practice hard.
0: Yeah. In, In regards to, like, you know, working on your own depression and anxiety, like, I didn't realize, I think, going in the kind of work it would take every day, like you said to kind of get better and it's like it's a super long process and i guess like people don't understand that like because they're comparing to other people and also like you know this whole age of social media like you're only looking at end result like man like the guy in all those ads who's like you want lean muscle like look at you want to look like me i don't know
1: what you're talking about yeah he's
0: i get him like every day on my freaking Instagram, and. that guy like sure he has his own tips and tricks but that guy probably worked forever to get to that body type but people see that and they're like oh i can get that in like two months probably which is not realistic at all it takes years and years for any sort of like mental or physical uh peak to come around yeah man
1: one of the hardest parts of the journey in terms of trying to help somebody is convincing them to do the work yeah. even like for me like you know I started coaching basketball this year and then the pandemic hit but you know the, the, the hardest thing for me as a coach was to get them to do the work and then once they started doing the work we started looking like how the Toronto Raptors looked last year when they were just running up and down and relentlessly just mentally just dominating the competition because there was just a level of assuredness. In what you could do because you've done the work. Confidence doesn't come from just—it's not this ethereal thing that just floats down out of the air and lands inside your heart. Yeah. and Now you're confident. Yeah. Confidence comes from doing the work and
0: then proving it on stage. Yeah. That's where confidence comes from. Yeah. My dad always used to say, like before swimming, when I would get like super nervous, he was always like, "Just trust your training. And like, that's it. Just put the put your trust into the work you've done and." don't overthink the end result and it'll, it'll come to you.
1: That's it, man. know, So, you know, I'm, I'm such a big believer that every kid should play sports.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree.
1: Should play a sport. Um, and, and to, you know, do it for not just a year, but like several years yeah. and, and get into it. Um, and hopefully you have you know some good coaches around you to, to really develop this practice of knowing that when you start playing a sport, unless you're destined to be a pro athlete, you're going to suck at it.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know? Man. You're just not going to be good. No. And then over time, you become better.
2: And then you look back and it's like, I couldn't I couldn't even dribble basketball. I couldn't. You know, one
1: of the things I used to do when I was a kid, I used to play a lot of uh, road hockey. Mm-hmm. I played a ton of road hockey. And when you're a kid working on your wrist shot, trying to just raise the puck to go top shelf, like, you know how hard that was, kid? And then the oh, first man. time you do it, you're like, wow, I actually did this thing. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, you work on your slap shot and you're just like missing the puck completely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like flying all over the place.
0: Right? You know, all of that stuff. You know, hitting a baseball yeah. it takes a long time to even learn how to swing a bat. Mm-hmm. Dribbling a basketball. You know, dribbling a soccer ball. Yeah. That's hard. <laughs> man, I can't, I still can't do it. <laughs> right? You know, it's, it's a tough thing to do. But then eventually you get it and, you know, things become normal and natural. It's all about the practice. That's Everything is practice. It. It's all the work that you put in. As an adult, I have
1: focused the majority of my work internally. I've never said, I want to be this thing. I mean, I've always had, I would say like a vision of, I want to be this thing. But I would say, 20% of my time has been learning the skill of that thing,
0: and 80% of my time has been developing the internal practice. You know, what
1: do I say to myself in my head? You know, how am I visualizing this thing? How am I relating to people more? obviously, there's some level of external practice to skill, but most of it has been internal, because at some point I realized that everything you do internally to build yourself up will then be reflected externally without you even trying.
0: Yeah, like if you're limiting yourself mentally and you're putting the work in, the work's not going to...
1: When when you start the game, you're going to choke.
0: Yeah, exactly, man. Like for swimming, like swimming is like 95% mental. You can be the oh, fittest... Ath- exactly, you can be the fittest athlete out there. If you like don't have the mental like, yeah, I can do this, I think, <laughs> uh, then the work's going to go nowhere.
1: Yeah, you know what's interesting? You know, they talk about In sports, they talk about those who show up for the, you know, under the bright lights. Those, those who, um, who are clutch, so to speak. And you know, as as someone, you know, you've you've excelled excelled in sports. So I'm assuming that there was a mental process to how you approach the swim meet. You know what I mean? And I I don't know about you, but any time I've ever been successful in, in 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 a game, whether it's an organized game or a pickup. I have never thought about losing. Right. For me, it was always, especially in those key moments where you're at the end of the race, there was no point in my mind where I was like, oh my God, I might lose this race. It was more, I have to do everything I can to win this race. Mm -hmm. That's where, like, my thought process was, you know. When, When I was playing, like, basketball, you know, growing up, it was, you know, I always wanted the ball at the end of the game. You know, the first three quarters of the game, whatever it was, I was distributing, I was passing, you know, I was rebounding. I was being, you know, more of a facilitator. But those crucial moments, I had so much belief in myself that mm-hmm. I was going to get it done. I was like, you know, my whole demeanor would change from nice guy to, like, game face, give me the ball. And I'm either going to score it, draw a foul, or make a play for someone else. That I never even thought that any other possibility could ever occur. Right, You know, those who, you know, in sports, they get scared under the bright lights, and you can see it happening.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they crumble, yeah.
1: You can see it happening in real time, and this person looks amazing in practice, but when it comes to performance, I'm not a good practice player.
0: Man, I was... I was not a good trainer.
1: I didn't like practice, I didn't. (laughs) But, you know, I'd be, you know, before the game, I'd be... You know, warming up, shooting shots. And, you know, a, typically a great basketball player is making all the warm-up shots. You know, I'd be missing shots all <laughs> over the place. You know, people are like, oh, this guy can't shoot. I'm yeah. like, all right, wait till the game. <laughs> <laughs> the game would just be lights out. I'm not missing. Now I'm just so much in that zone that all I can focus on is success. Right. That's another thing that I've written on my whiteboard at home is focused on success. You now Obviously, it came, came from sports. But what it means for me is as a person, I'm, I'm focused on being a successful person. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, you know, achieving a lot of my career and making a lot of money. I mean, that helps. <laughs> but what it really means for me is, am I hurting people or am I helping people? And I want to help more people than I hurt. I'm not ever going to go through a life where I don't hurt somebody because we all, it, it just happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if I could encounter a hundred people and help 90 of them, then I think I'm, I'm doing well. If I can help 95, I'm doing really well. If I can help 99, then I'm, you know, I'm essentially,
2: you know, uh, a monk at that point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm not there,
1: but I'm always trying to get there. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in my life where I was the guy who was, you know, I was on that 50-50 line, you know, and people were like, oh, you're such a great person. It's like, yo, I wasn't always this person. There's a point where I realized I was hurting a lot of people in my life and I had to make the change and practice being a better person right you know i'm going to focus on the success of what that looks like to be that better person rather than sit in the guilt and worry of what if i'm not but i don't say that like to demean or denigrate anyone who has trouble with you know coming out of that guilt or you know being in that in that place because that's hard i've been there before too but i really it's it's you know when you do the practice the results will follow
3: yeah
0: Definitely. It's all about practice, man. Uh, you mentioned in your interview re- recently with uh, Kevin Frankish that, you know, with everything going on right now, it is a hard time, but it isn't a hopeless time. What are some ways that you can share with the viewers uh, that you've been able to keep hope in, like, times like this when it seems almost impossible? You know,
1: how can it not be hopeful, man? Look, uh, you know, we got hit with a pandemic. Hard. <laughs> hard. And I look out my window every day and I see folks walking around with masks. Mm -hmm. You know, I always look out the window, I'm always looking and paying attention to people. And when the pandemic, you know, the shutdown first started, the streets were almost empty. And now you see people in groups of two and groups of threes and everyone's wearing their masks and they're socially distancing and people are making space for others on sidewalks. In this short period of time, three months, we have figured a way out. Humans have succeeded because of two things because we're good at building things because we got these thumbs here. (laughs) So we're good at like physically building things. And the other thing that humans have been exceptional at is when the problems really hit us, we find a way to adapt. History has taught me that. I don't remember all the facts about history, but I do know one thing is that humans find a way to adapt. Humans are really hard to die. Like, it's, it's really hard to, like, eradicate us. Right, we're like, yeah. cockroaches, coaches. <laughs> we just don't go away. Yeah, So we continue to figure things out. So how can I not be hopeful? Right. right? You know, we look at, you know, if, if we want to talk about this social revolution happening around us as we're finally starting to address anti-Black racism. When I was growing up, a regular conversation in my house was,
0: man, there will never be a black president. Hmm. Barack Obama came no yep, He came right around. Like,
1: then you went, like, oh, man, things are never going to change, man. The police are always going to be this way. Minneapolis is like, hey, we're, we're going to try to figure out a way to not even have police in our city.
3: Yeah.
1: All you have to do to be hopeful is to look around. You know, we have the benefit of living in, in a country that has winters. So we see the change. You know, we, all we have to do is look outside. All the leaves will fall off and then grow back every single year. You know, you get a cut on your arm and it heals. Mm-hmm. How can we not be hopeful?
3: Right. Always figuring out the problem. Even people are like, oh man, a vaccines
1: going to take two years, I'm like, give it a year. We're going to figure this out, everybody.
0: Yeah. A problem a lot of people have is like, especially with the media, like, They only focus on the negatives and like all the little progress that we're making with everything is kind of just in the back burner. I've had conversations with a lot of people, an unfortunate amount of people, where it's like what we're doing right now isn't changing anything. It's like, well, that's because you're focused on all the negative that the media is throwing at you. Like if you look at like the things that have already happened from, you know, the movement that's going on right now, all the little progress that we've made already in like the span of what, two weeks? Like, yeah. there, change is happening. Change happens when we all come together.
1: That's it, man. And you know, one thing about humanity is as much as we're against each other sometimes, when all the chips are down, we find a way to come together. Yep. You know, so I mean, I know it's tough and I know it's hard and, you know, someone said to me the other day on Twitter, they said, you know, talking about this whole racism thing. And, you know, for me, yeah, you know, obviously I have my frustration from time to time as we all figure this out. And, you know, they hit me on uh, the DMs and this person said to me, you have the patience of an angel. In a way, that put me in a sober mood because I don't think I'm anything special in, in that regard. I think for me, it's just I, I recognize that, you know, we're not all in the same place and we all have different experiences and we're all growing. We're all learning. Right, right? I need to make room for that. You know what I'm saying? Because if I'm the person who's like, "Oh man, yo, these white people didn't give a shit before, but now they give a shit," blah, you know, too little, too late. My big picture is still a world of equality, and a world in which me, as this six foot four black person, can walk down the street and feel safe. Am I bitter? Of course I'm bitter, but I'm not going to let that get in my way. Right, of recognizing what's happening. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be patient. And yeah, maybe I'm gonna do some emotional labor. I, I I don't want to, or I shouldn't do it, whatever. Like because I'm I am i am still looking toward my big picture. Yeah, that's the most important thing for me, mm-hmm. right? So my big picture is I want racism to end. I want all the isms to end. If I'm being real,
3: yeah.
1: Um, you know I need to be patient so I can engage in the ways I might need to engage with friends, community, public, whoever in order to make sure that we're all coming together, like you said, to make a difference and to make a change.
3: Yeah,
1: I know there there are some folks who believe that maybe segregation is the way. I don't know, man. I'm not, I don't know if I sit on any side of the fence there, but for me, I I just feel like, even if we're like segregated where it's like, oh, there's this country here that's all black folks and then there's a country here that's all white folks. Given the way that our global economy operates, we still need to work together. Exactly. Yeah. We still need to learn how to live together and respect each other. Not, not just respect each other, but like, you know, give humanity to each other. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how, where we live, we still need to have that. Because at the end of the day, you're a human, I'm a human, and we're sharing this earth. Right. And we need to figure it out. And we need to figure it out together.
0: Yeah, like we've mentioned before, it's going to take, like, everyone doing their part to kind of get to that point. There's too many people right now that are going, oh, I I can't make a difference. I'm not in a position to make a difference or, like, this doesn't apply to me, so I'm not going to do anything. There's too many people like that right now.
1: Everything applies to you. Yeah. That's not the way I live life, you know what I mean? I have people who say that to me. They're like, hey, man, why do you care so much about the LGBTQ movement? You know, you're a
2: cisgender
1: You know, heterosexual men, you
0: know, why do you care so much? I'm like, because that's a human being, bro. Exactly. Exactly. Like, how can I not care? That's, man, like that confuses me so much. Like when people are like, why do you care about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement or the LGBTQ movement? Like, how can you not care? That, I will never in my lifetime understand why people don't care. Like, they're people. <laughs> like, that's yeah, like, that's it. I don't even need to explain anything else to you. They're human beings. So why? Would, like,
1: yeah. Would you not imagine? You know, for me, it's like put yourself in the shoes of someone who is being hurt.
2: Yeah. Remove
1: identity from this picture. I'm not even talking about whatever social identity we all, you know, live our lives in the skin we live in the identity we live in, etc. cetera. Just imagine you are a person and you are being attacked by three other persons. Again, removing identities out of the picture.
3: Yeah.
1: And a hundred other people walk by who all have the power to help you and they don't. Mm-hmm. How are you going to feel being the person being attacked? Knowing these other people can help you and they don't.
0: How yeah, exactly.
1: do you not care about that person being attacked.
0: I wish I had the answer, honestly. I don't.
1: I don't get that, man. I know. It's because we you know what it is. Because we tell kids they're being too nice.
0: Exactly. It starts from that.
1: Kids are such beautiful people. Yeah. Until we get you a know, hold of their minds and poison them with things like that.
0: Exactly. Kids aren't born racist. You know, transphobic, homophobic. They're not born anything like that. They're like, this is my friend. And that's all I see them as. And then it's later when they're influenced by other things that they get their, you know, views. The
1: problem with being different. No soul, difference in, in this country. I don't know why. I yeah. But it's so I, to be different. You know
0: how boring it would be if everyone was the same person. Oh my god. <laughs> That'd be you horrible. Want to be like a big level
3: of Super Mario Brothers every day. Oh. <laughs> no. When, when, you, when you don't want difference, that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. You know,
1: you want to be the same page of the book every day. Do you want to watch the same five minutes of the movie every day? No. Do you want, you want to watch the same sports highlight every day? If you don't want difference, that's what you're subscribing to.
0: Exactly. Like, even when I was a kid, I was afraid to be different. Why, why is being different so frowned upon? I
1: don't know, man. Me too. I was afraid to be different too, man. man
0: I used to get bullied so hard in elementary school because I would like... I wouldn't talk to anybody. I was obsessed with like bugs and animals and stuff. So like at recess, I would like go into the forest or in the corner and like look at bugs and stuff. And everyone's like, he's not, he's not playing sports. He's not flirting with girls. He's weird, man. He's different. I don't like that. So I got bullied for it. Why do people bully people for being different? It doesn't like, yeah. The
1: biggest privilege I have had in life is the way that I was raised, which was essentially just to see the humanity in everybody. Yeah. so for me I was I always gravitate toward
3: difference but I find different to be interesting right and so oh, I, I get bored really quick when everything is staying the same
1: yeah um or you know also like if, if you were to see like if you were to put all my friends in a room I mean it would look like like the United Nations you know what I'm saying
0: <laughs> yeah, like I feel that. you know what I'm saying so yeah. it's just
1: like you know that happened naturally for me just because I'm I just want I'm a really curious person. So I look at difference as wow, that's some really cool stuff, man. Mm -hmm. Rather than I don't want to be around that. Yeah, (laughs) you know. And I wish we could just raise all of our kids that way because we don't. What we do
2: is when kids, parents download their fears into kids, Mm -hmm.
1: right? So if I am for whatever reason afraid of difference, whether it's because that person is a different race or different gender or has a different sexual orientation. Or I don't know, maybe they have a disease that makes them look different. And then I'm walking down the street with my kid. And, then, you know, the kid is, like, looking or whatever and, you know, just being curious. And you're like, no, no, don't talk to them. Yeah, You immediately told that kid just not to only discriminate against that person, but to discriminate against those who are different from you. Yeah. Stop doing that.
0: It's just one little motion, and that kid's going to remember that forever. And
1: then they're going to turn 25, and someone's going to say, you're racist or you're sexist or you're transphobic. And they're not going to feel that way inside of themselves, but someone at a very young age taught them that, and they don't even know it. A big part of where we are in society now is, you know, and this is why I'm always paying attention to people in reading, is we need to learn so that we can unlearn. Right. We all get these problematic messages downloaded into us. You know what I'm saying? I'm not even going to mention all the problematic stuff I used to do or say or whatever, but I mean, there was a lot of it. Yeah, far more than I ever thought.
3: Mm-hmm. I always thought, like, oh man, I don't got nothing against nobody,
1: and I didn't have anything against anybody because I wasn't going out there and like discriminating and like, you know, hurting people actively. Right. But I was telling the jokes. Yeah. And I was letting things slide, and I was actively not understanding someone else's experience mm-hmm. because it didn't. It didn't matter to me. Yeah. Right. Now I realize I can't live like that. I need to want to know about someone's experience and then to do something about that desire to actually learn about that person's experience, to be curious. Mm-hmm. That is how we create empathy.
3: Yep.
1: And then we get to that place of you know a better world. And I know you know we've been talking about mental health and I think mental health is a great microcosm in terms of, you know, now we're normalizing the conversation and talking about it. And hopefully we can extrapolate that the other experiences in our social world.
0: I I always say like conversation is where it starts. Like that's, you have to have conversations. They're going to be like right now, they're going to be so uncomfortable for a lot of people. Like the conversations (laughs) you're having right now with like family and friends and everything are uncomfortable, but they need to happen. Dude.
1: And No, I think, One of the assumptions is that, like, within my community of black folks, we're having uncomfortable conversations, too. Yeah, yeah. Amongst each other in terms of how do we respond to this movement. Whereas some folks are, oh, man, you know, this is just performative. No one really cares about this. Other folks are more hopeful. Other folks are removing themselves from it. You know, there are all these different things happening in terms of, you know, how we feel about what's happening in our world right now. I can't speak for everybody, but that's just what I've observed, right? So, I mean, even you know, I, I think there's this assumption that, like, what the black folks are, like, some sort of monolith. Yeah. <laughs> and that we all think and think the same thing and think the same way and believe the same thing. That's not true. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that we have in common is our suffering. Right. R- which is unfortunate, but that is kind of, you know, where, where a lot of the coming together, you know, the, the underlying threat, you know, the other things, spirituality, you know, some shared histories and experiences of the world, but I mean, that suffering is a big one, you know, but beyond that, it's like different people respond differently to things and different people think differently. And, and because of that, I'm having uncomfortable, uncomfortable conversations with my friends. I'm having uncomfortable conversations with, with with my family, you know, co-workers who are black. A lot of uncomfortable conversations.
3: A whole lot, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you know, that's where we're at. That's what we got to do.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the first That's step. Like, like sports, like mental health, it's just, it's work. Got We got to keep working at it. Everything going on right now is not a trend as like some people are treating it. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's all work, man. It's not just going to overnight be like, oh, hey, we solved racism. That's cool. <laughs> we solved centuries of problems right now in two weeks. It's not going to happen like that. We kind of answered all the questions I had about, you know, what's going on right now with the movement. Uh, I've got uh, one question left. What would you say to people, and there's a lot of people out there, who are firm believers that Canada is not racist?
1: Man, then you're not paying attention. Yeah. And you know, you know, one thing that has really struck me in, in the last little while, um, I would say this week in particular, is that you do not recognize racism if you live in a bubble. Mm-hmm. Right? So if all of the folks in your social circle, look like you and think like you, how are you going to recognize racism? Yeah. If you, if you don't, you know, if, if, if I'm a, a white person and I don't have a black friend or a friend from India or a friend from Venezuela or a friend from, you know, Cambodia, you know, to help me understand, you know, in their experiences of the world, how the heck am I going to be able to recognize racism when it's happening? Yeah. If I've never had engaged with and someone else who has experienced it, and they've told me,
3: you know, this is what racism looks like through my lens, right? Right. I think,
1: you know, therein lies white privilege. (laughs) It's like, you don't have to think about racism because it's not happening to you, Mm -hmm. right? And and if you don't have any friends or family members or coworkers or whoever that you're close to who racism does happen to, who have to think about it, then you're not going to recognize it even exists yeah one of the things i'm seeing recently is that i, I don't say this to condemn or criticize anybody but you know our society is built has been built in such a way where like we've been so segregated where white folks over here and other folks over here and you know different groups and we're all just kind of occupying different spaces but living in the same city or the same country. and maybe, you know, I'm only consuming media from people who look like me, whether it's books, news, TV, movies, video games, sports, whatever. If I don't know anything about someone else's experience, I'm not going to see them.
3: Yeah. I'm
1: going to see their their day-to-day. So what I've noticed is that, like, in our society, we have made black folks so invisible, and removed black folks from any conversation at all. Yeah, because you haven't seen black people, you just don't know what they're experiencing. And because of that, when well, you know when we have said stuff in the past, the the, the privileged lens is there must be another reason, mm-hmm. because you have never experienced the reason, which is racism. Yeah. So you know, you have to you know, find another reason. To, to make it even make sense to you in your head.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, racism just doesn't even make sense to you. You can't even conceive of it because it has never happened to you. Right. And I don't mean that, you know, you, you haven't ran into someone who's not a white person who said like the mean thing about white people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not, that's not nice. <laughs> no one should be doing that. Like, you know what I mean? But what I mean, when I say racism, what I mean is you haven't walked into a store With the assumption that the clerk doesn't want you there. Yeah. And following you around the store. You haven't gone into an interview wondering who you're going to be interviewed by and whether that person's identity is going to determine your result. You know, you haven't been in class and you're the only person with your hand up and the teacher ignores you. But then you put your hand down and then someone else puts their hands up and the teacher picks them. Or you say the same thing, and the teacher looks at you like you're an idiot, and then another person said the same thing in different words, or sometimes very similar words, and the teacher says, oh, man, that's great contribution. Yeah. That's where like racism is really damaging. It's, it's in those moments, and those are the moments that are harder to see if you don't experience it. I remember being in kindergarten, not even kindergarten yet, daycare. And wondering why only the kids who are not white are playing with me. Mm. Four years old. Yeah. And already noticing that the white kids won't play with me. But the other kids will. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the Asian kid or the South Asian kid or, you know, or, or the white kids that would play with me, you know, oftentimes were like, you know, the Romanian kid. Yeah,
3: yeah. Like the Polish kid. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like... <laughs> Right?
2: You don't know what to call it at that
1: age, but you see it. Yeah. And then I remember, you know, another experience I had was, you know, Superman was like huge when I was growing up, you know, the movies and all that. I remember being in um, the bathroom after gym class. It's like grade one or grade two. And like, uh, you know, they have like the blow dryers to like dry your hands or whatever. So all the kids, um, you know, all the white kids are like putting their hands up, or no, they're putting their heads underneath the blow dryer to like, Make the wind blow through their hair right. and they go like this to yeah. pretend they're a Superman. Yeah, and I realized I couldn't do that. And what did that say about you know? So they could be Superman, but you couldn't. But yeah. I can't. Right. When we talk about racism, it's it's so firmly built into how we build our society that it's 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 everywhere. But if you don't experience it and you don't have any friends who are experiencing it, you're not going to see it. Right. If my experience is invisible to you, you're not going to see it. And, and you know, for me, it, w- it wasn't even like those kids did anything wrong.
0: No, exactly. Yeah, that, it was. It's that there wasn't a superhero that looked like me. Right.
1: That I could pretend to be. Yeah. Every Halloween, I struggle to find a costume because you know all of the you know what we see as black men in, in the media are you know, rappers, yeah. thugs, and athletes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like, you know, I, I don't want to dress up as myself. <laughs> yeah, no. For <laughs>
3: Halloween, you know what I mean? <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? So, like, I, I want to
1: be able to play in that fantasy, but there are just not enough stories that are widespread enough. Yeah. Or, I mean, I know the stories personally because, like, I indulge in those things. But if I go to a party, I don't want to have to explain my costume
3: to everybody because they don't know anything about the black stories that i engage with right you feel yeah so when we talk about systemic racism
1: and we talk about inclusion it really means everyone is involved doesn't Mm -hmm. mean everyone's gonna be involved at the same time you know because just different stories have different lenses right but if all the stories are one way and no other stories exist then that's a problem
3: yeah
1: right or if those stories exist and you willfully do not engage with them because there are plenty of black stories out there or plenty of stories of a variety of other cultures, ethnicities, identities out there, they exist. Yeah, And they do come in the movie theaters and they do come on TV and the books are in the library. Not as many as there needs to be for all of those things, but they do exist. And if you willfully ignore those things, that's on you, yeah, you know then the the person who owns the library or the movie theater they stop putting them there because they don't make money,
0: right, we have a lot of work to do, I'll tell you that for free,
1: that's it man we we, we certainly do, but at least we're we're in a position where now we recognize that, and you know we're starting
0: and man everyone everyone's got time to help <laughs> no no one right now can be like, oh, you know i I can't you know sign a petition i'm I'm busy doing nothing at home like that everyone's got time to do something
1: you, you, we all got time to do a little something
0: yeah it's baby retweet stuff
1: yeah retweet something repost something on yeah. instagram because hey. i i don't actually like when people say that's not
2: doing anything because it may not be doing quote unquote enough
3: yeah
1: um but i've learned a lot of stuff on social media the last couple of weeks that I didn't know before because someone else posted it in their Instagram story or someone retweeted it. Yep. So what you're doing is you're amplifying and you're providing exposure when you do those things. So yeah, I think that stuff is important. Of course you want to live out those actions in real life, but I will never criticize anybody where they do a lot of activism on social media because behind every social media account or most of them, if you want to believe in the Russian bot story, behind, <laughs> behind uh, you know most social media accounts, is a real person. Yeah. So you are actually reaching people.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. Like, I, I'm the same way. I learned so much stuff the last two weeks just because someone oh. posted on your story. I'm like, oh. So that's actually all the questions I have about um, kind of mental health and what's going on right now. I have a couple final questions because originally, you know, to kick off season two, you're the first episode, by the way. Uh, to, oh, kick- guess, man, thank you. <laughs> to kick off season two, I kind of was going to live stream on Instagram and like, hit up everyone who was on season one and asked them some fire, some rapid fire fun questions. Never got to. Uh, so I'm just going to hit you with them. Uh, cool. if, if you're up for it, it's kind of to lighten That's up right, the
2: mood. It. Let's, do it.
0: Let's do it. All right. So I read in your, uh, you have a, a blog on the internet. I read in the about me on your blog that, you know, you have a super varying music playlist that kind of ranges from yeah. Daft Punk to Erica Badu to Drake, you know, stuff like that. So on yep. that topic, what are your top five singers, rappers, or musicians, dead or alive, right now?
1: So sure. um, right now, yeah, um, I gotta say there's there's a uh, there's a rapper who I've been listening to a lot lately. Um, I do not know if it, how to pronounce the name, but JID. Um, yes. He, yep. Yeah. He he's dope, man. You can tell I don't really listen to as much music as I need to these days. <laughs> um, I I've, I've been returning to a rapper named Joe Budden. Um. Who did like uh, this uh, mixtape called Mood Music Two, which really helped me through my own experiences? Mm-hmm. It's all about his depression. Um, he's super honest in it. Um, dead or alive, man. Uh, I'm blanking out on you, man. This never happens. I'm choking <laughs> in the clutch. <butt>. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> recently, um, I've been listening to I've been listening to like some Euro pop stuff recently, man. Uh, there is uh, this duet called The Pirouettes. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know if they're French or from Belgium, but I know they sing in French. Um, there's another uh, group called Parcels that, you know, I, again, they're European. I'm not exactly sure, but, you know, sometimes Spotify recommends some stuff to you. Um, and um, my boy, uh, Toby, he's from he's from Toronto, Brampton, actually, T-O-B, little case I. Um I've been into him a lot lately too, man. I actually know him personally. I mean, we're not super close, but um, I've been able to like see his growth from like, you know, opening for people to, you know, having a song on a big TV show on HBO. So um, yeah. So I think that's my top five. That wasn't super rapid
0: fire. I had to get there. No, that's (laughs) fine. That's a tough question. I don't even think I could do that right now, to be honest. So the next one is, so for me, my two comfort foods, like my, Whenever, like, without fail, are pizza and chicken wings. Like, without fail. So f- for you, uh, which one takes the crown, pizza or chicken wings? And then I have a follow up for either one.
1: Oh, that's pizza all day. Pizza.
0: Every day. So yeah. if pizza, what are your top three toppings? First, second, what is the best pizza joint in Toronto in your opinion? And uh-huh. does pineapple belong on pizza?
1: Oh boy. Yes, pineapple does belong on Thank
0: pizza. you, thank you.
1: <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, top pizza joint in Toronto, um, I would say uh, Pizza Yolo. Um, that, that's my that's my top one. Um, top toppings. I'm a meat guy. Nice. Uh, yeah. So I mean, for me, it's all about that pepperoni, that ground beef. Um, let's throw some, you know, some Italian sausage on that baby. Mm. And go to town.
0: Oof. That's a good sound in pizza, man. And you sprinkle the pineapple on top. Just add a touch. I, I put top three, but if you don't have a top three, just one. Uh, shows or movies that are getting you through quarantine right now? Oh,
1: man. Um, probably the, the top one. Me and my wife have been doing a lot of Netflix lately. Uh, uh, hashtag Black AF on Netflix. I think it's hilarious. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Actually really deep in terms of explaining, you know, a lot of different stories about blackness. Um, some people have criticisms, but anyway it's a different thing Um, so hashtag black AF we watched uh, something called Dead to Me
0: which I thought was dope Dead to Me is good yep (laughs)
1: right Um, and I'm gonna pick one that's like personal for me this is it's kind of dark but I'm like really into human psychology Um, it's called it's like a documentary series it's called I Am a Killer and essentially what it's doing is like interviewing um, people who are in jail for killing someone, and then also interviewing the the prosecutors and whoever was involved in the case and hearing both sides, and it's it's really like sometimes you're like you're you're watching you know the killers interview and you're like damn maybe they really didn't do it, and then you hear the evidence come out and
3: you're like whoa like this person's probably like a sociopath like yeah they were able to
1: convince me like so strongly that they didn't, but all evidence like real physical not circumstantial like real evidence like points to them and i'm like wow so it's really like i don't know i like getting to human psychology so yeah i can't lie to I, I got into tiger king which i was reluctant to get into <laughs> but i was like what is this and then i got into
0: it for the same reasons it's the human psychology behind everyone involved those,
1: is in that whole thing
0: those people are nuts
1: <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> like, like Interesting to say the least is what I'll say.
0: First thing you're gonna do when quarantine gets lifted? I'm
1: gonna have all my friends over.
0: Nice. Yeah.
1: Bottles, you know.
0: I love it. <laughs> I will be doing the exact same thing. Hopefully it's soon. I mean, who knows? But and then finally, if there's a viewer watching this who's kind of going through uh, a si- situation that was similar to what you experienced, uh, or just someone struggling with their own demons in general, uh, what would you want them to hear? I would say to that person that you know. Always
1: try your best to keep hope. And even hope is a practice. You know, It's not necessarily going to land in your lap. you got to go out there looking for it. So try to find inspirational stories of real people or sometimes even not real people because even the things that are written about not real people came from a real person. Yeah. So try to find inspirational stories and take the, the positive and the lessons out of those things and, and to see that it is possible for someone to struggle mightily and still have a good
0: outcome. Words of wisdom from Asante himself. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you, man. Uh, You know, I normally don't stay as long as as we did here, but this was really good, so I appreciate
0: it. What I usually do with my guests now, because they've been on, uh, I kind of give them like a 30-second shameless plug for anything that they've got going on in, in their life. And you know, with all the interviews you've been doing, clearly you've got a lot going on so if there's anything you want the viewers to know that you've got going on now's your time
1: yeah um i think the biggest thing right now uh is i wrote this article called i shouldn't have to say this uh that's the title of the article um throw that in google with my name uh asante houghton and you're probably gonna find it otherwise you can go to kbi inspires or the dot it it's one of them um and that's where the article is currently housed um uh, I don't say this just to promote myself, but it, it appears that article appears to be having a huge impact on a lot of people. Um, so go and check it out. Um, you can hit me up on Twitter at A-S-A-N-T-E, capital B, or on Instagram at nerdy.black.guy,
0: and you could essentially get to know me a little bit better. Perfect. All right. And with that, we are done. So for all my viewers, I will see you guys next time. Thank you for watching another episode of The H Panel. I really appreciate you guys. For more episodes of The H Panel, click this button right here. And if you want to subscribe for more videos from myself, subscribe is right down below. Thanks, guys.